Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Pretty, the new novel from best-selling author Jillian Lauren, now available from Plume Books, wherever books are sold. Jillian's first book, a memoir called Some Girls, was a New York Times bestseller, a runaway hit. Now she comes out with her debut novel, which Jerry Stahl, author of Permanent Midnight, hails as, quote, utterly riveting and compulsively readable. Jillian Lauren renders the taste and feel of wretched excess, be it sex, drugs, food, or Los Angeles, with a savage veracity and style all of her own, or style all her own, end quote. Pretty. It's the new novel from Jillian Lauren. Go to your local retail establishment, purchase it, go online, get your copy, hold that copy, read that copy. It's a book. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go. This is it. I'm Brad Listy. This is Other People, the new podcast in which I talk to other people, other writer people in particular, people who write stuff, people who write books, people who sit there all day long staring at a flashing cursor, People who write even though they're deep in poverty. People who continue to try to write books even though the books they're trying to write are eluding them. People who quietly endure the monumental frustration of trying to put the words in the right order. Those are the people that I'm going to be talking with. And the reason I'm doing the show is because I find these people interesting. I work with them on a daily basis. I have for years now. I, in addition to being a writer, run an online literary community and culture magazine called The Nervous Breakdown, where this podcast can be found. Uh, it can also be found at otherpeoplepod.com, its own little website. But I, I run this uh, website called The Nervous Breakdown. It started five years ago. We had like 20 writers when we got, got going, and now we have over 700, I believe, something like that. So it's this community that's grown beyond my wildest uh, imagination uh, beyond my wildest dreams when I initially started it up. And over the years, I've gotten to know writers, and I feel like there's a hole out there in the media world. And I feel like there uh, is an effort being made here with this podcast to fill it. And by that, I mean, I think that authors are interesting, and I feel like they don't often get a chance 
to sit there and uh, talk about themselves, maybe by choice. But I think that this is something that readers, people interested in books, people who might be considering an interest in books would benefit from hearing from authors, hearing about their lives in particular, rather than the minutia of their writing work and the minutia of literature with a capital L as it is often discussed uh, in the realm of academia. What am I saying? I think what I'm saying is that this show is going to be about the authors, about them, about them as people. Uh, and it'll also be about their work, but mostly it's about them as people. I want to know who they are, what their childhoods were like, what's going on, what happened yesterday, why they're wearing what they're wearing, things like that. I want to know what they eat. I want to know what makes them enraged. And I think that if we get to know them as people better, we'll know better whether or not we want to read their stuff. I, I think that this show is about perpetuating book culture by letting people know who these writers are, by having intimate conversations in which they reveal stuff. That's the idea. I want candor. Don't you want candor? I want candor. So that's the show. If you have any questions about it or thoughts about it, if you want to critique it or lambast me or offer gushing praise, you can email at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Follow us at otherpeoplepod. Visit at otherpeoplepod.com, which is the official website where all new shows and all news regarding the show will be located. Uh, you can also go to thenervousbreakdown.com, which is the beast. Uh, the show will be broadcast there in our little podcast section. Uh, as for the show itself, the sound of the show itself, I want to issue uh, you know, fair warning that the early rounds of shows, the sound quality is not going to be as utterly ideal as I would hope it would be. And that's my fault. That's me learning how to do this stuff. So they're perfectly listenable. You won't have any trouble hearing and it won't be that annoying, but it's not going to sound radio quality like this, what you're hearing right now, but that's coming. So bear with me. I'm an idiot. I'm learning this tech stuff as I go minute by minute. And you know, it's a bit of an ordeal to be honest with you, but I'm getting there. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. You're, uh, you're, uh, sequestered in your mobile home? Yeah. My, my, are we rolling or something? 
Yeah, well, yeah, I've got Jonathan Evison on the line. Let me put some. Let me put some pants on. Yeah, author of uh, All About Lulu, winner of the is it the Washington State Book Award, and the best-selling West of Here, now out from Algonquin. Um, he is also not wearing pants currently. Are you there? I'm more, yeah, I'm wearing sweats now. Hey, uh, yeah, my brother-in-law just left. The chaos left, so this is good, good timing on the call. Nice. <sighs> Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? I get up at the crack of dawn these days to get any writing, writing done, and by, like, you're a dad and you're a parent, you know, you try to work at home. Right. By 8.30, it's just pure, just pure chaos. Yeah, it's hard. Three dogs scratching at the door, dog barking, kid right upstairs just hammering on the floor, my wife asking me, it's it's hard to get any work done. I mean, yeah. I love being a family man. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, I'm I'm gonna just have to stop sleeping. Well, yeah, and then what? What's this deal with the vertigo? Don't you have vertigo too? I did. It's all gone. Jeez, dude, I was like panicked for like for like a week. I was just like really looking at my mortality. So we did all this blood work. I couldn't figure out what it was. I mean, I was like really dizzy. I mean, I just stand up, and the whole world was pitching, and I thought, oh god, all my partying's finally caught up to me on my sleep. You know, maybe the reason I'm so prolific and I work so fast is because I got one of those big brain tumors, the angel Michael Gundrevold. <laughs> and so all this was going through my head. It was worse than the time I had blood in my semen. But uh, as it turns out, I think it was just like some kind of inner ear infection that well, they couldn't see in the canal because I'm better now. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Four days. I got to stop you. Like uh, blood in your semen? Yeah, that's a different story. That happened once. I, I and it's a real buzz kill too when you're up because uh you know, imagine having to check if there's blood in your semen. Not a fun not a not a fun exercise. That was uh that was just I had a uh, my prostate was ir- irritated at another virus kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Getting so old, bro. I'm getting old. They call me friend. Yeah, yeah. Well your phone's breaking up a little bit. Are you on a cell phone? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, okay, how's that? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better, man. I was like getting, you know, these kind of cryptic Facebook uh, updates on my wall about. Like, how the well, world. that was a plan, you know, just in case. Just in case you went down. It's weird. <laughs> it's, <laughs> make sure I was still interesting. No, you know, it's weird. Is that if I, anybody uh, cared? You go to the doctor. Desperate. You go to the doctor or something happens and it's, uh, you know, even the slightest thing. Like I remember I went to get a physical and the doctor was like, we think you have a slight heart murmur. And for the next week, all I could think, I could feel it. I was like, oh, my God, I can feel my heart. It, you know, it's going to, something's going to go, you know. And I started noticing things that I didn't notice previously. I felt fine prior to that. And then suddenly I can feel, like, tightness in my chest, you know. It's, it gets oh, and all head. of a sudden you're, like, holding the cheeseburger going, I, I can't eat this. And you're like, oh, I got to lay off the beer. I got to – I actually passed out in the doctor's office and they took my blood. I guess it's not that rare. They say guys do it all the time because they forget to breathe. right. I've never been good with giving blood, but I was already had vertigo, and they said I just like pitched over and started snoring, and they couldn't wake me up. Fascinating for like ten minutes, and that's why did she? So, so it scared the it scared the lifestyle right out of me for about a week. You know, I was just like drinking milk thistle and eating vegetables. But uh, now that I know it's just a virus, and my blood pressure's fine, and all the blood work came up fine, and I got a clean bill of health. I'm. Uh, Back to my old ways. Back to your old ways. So, did they give you medication for an ear infection? Is that what happened? No, they didn't give me. They gave me that you know meclizine or whatever you know the stuff they give you for sea sickness or whatever. Didn't do anything. Right. I mean, dude, the room was just spinning, which normally is like a good thing, you know. 
I mean, normally I build for hours just to get to that point. But like, <laughs> this is uh, it's just not good. Wow. And it lasted about I don't know about eight ten days. So impossible you, to write. Impossible. I was going to say you weren't getting any work done. No, I mean I would in the moments that I couldn't. You know, I mean if I'm not busy, I should then I write. You know. So. So what's I mean? Give give us a, a sense because I don't know if everybody understands the, the the force of nature. You know that is Jonathan Evison. The, the the amount of work you do, your work schedule. Like you're up at five. Is that what you do? Like what what, what happens with you? Yeah, I cheated till like five fifteen this morning. Um, these days, at least, I'm trying to get to bed earlier. So what happens is, I mean, I was touring for like basically like you know pretty much five months. You know, just on the road a lot. And, uh, you know, coming home to see my family whenever I could. And then I went through a period of intense, just really family time, um, like where we went out of town and camped and, like, just really good quality family time. And then now uh, I'm back still getting all that quality family time, but in order to really get the work I need to get done and catch up, I I just really got to get up early. So there's a few months there when I was touring, at least I didn't have to get up at 5 a.m., but I was going to bed at 5 a.m., you know. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like I find that most writers, it's got to be either – First thing in the morning or late at night, it's hard to work during work hours because the phone's ringing and the internet's, uh, you know, happening, and it's hard to kind of tune everything out. Um, oh yeah, my neighbor drops it, and my neighbor's a long ways away because you know I live way out in the woods. My neighbor's you know two hundred yards away through the creek. He drops his barbecue lid, and all three of my dogs are just howling. So wait, no, you know you're on I mean? like, Bainbridge, Bainbridge Island, is that correct? Out in Washington? Yeah. Just middle of no. That's just very. It's very bucolic. I've never been up there. What is it? What's the well, setting? Well, you know, it's become sort of a bedroom community. It's a lot bigger than it was than it was in the seventies when I grew up there. But like, I, you know, my place is still way out in the woods. There's like 140 acres of woods right behind my abutting my house on all sides, and it's still, you know, it's one of the last really big green belts on the island. It's become a little more suburban on the outskirts. I mean, suburban by my standards. So now what? I'm always complaining about the traffic. I'm looking at a less uh, a less populated island for some kind of weekend cabin sort of situation if I can make it happen. Cause I mean, I'm just getting crotchety and old and it's just like, you know, I must walk my kid about four miles a day in the stroller. Um, cause that's my thinking time. That's how I make up for the time where I can't be sitting at the typewriter. I just push him in the stroller and my gears will be spinning. Sure. There's too much traffic now. Damn school buses. So what are you talking about? Yes, are you, so you're strollering along the road or are you on some sort of like nature trail? Um, sometimes trails, but usually just a road. It's like a really beautiful wooded road, but it doesn't have huge bike lanes. And it's not like traffic, like the kind of traffic you're used to, but like even like one car a minute is just annoying because you got to cross lanes and, you know. Right, yeah. Ruins These it. are just the little vagaries of my life. No one probably cares about, Brad. Maybe you because you're a father. Well, no, I'm fat, I, I like the idea of getting a visual read on your situation. Like I always did picture you living on some sort of, uh, you know, nature preserve or somewhere you know in, in a wooded enclave if that if that's actually a term you know what i'm saying like i like to get a visual read on people's situation yeah. where, where are you in space um yeah out in the woods so now do you wake up in the morning with an alarm or is it you just pop yeah, out of bed i do you do okay. I, I i wake up in the morning with an alarm. some mornings it doesn't go off though and i, I beat it up um and but you know what i mean because your body gets trained after a while sure it's all about discipline for me and keeping on a schedule you know, that's, that's because each day I stay on my schedule, I just become more and more productive. It's just more like conditioning yourself, an athlete or something. I mean, if I get up at 5 in the morning the first morning, I may not really get cooked until 6.45. But, like, by the 7th or 8th morning for doing that, I'm, like, really, I can get there quicker. You know what I mean? Like, right. 
it's like a boxer in training. You know, you just got to get yourself hammered into that yeah. routine. But uh, yeah, and I do try to get uh, hammered the night before and get a little punch drunk. I like to work like a knuckleballer. These more tired sports analogies. Right. I like my arm to be tired. I like to throw on my off days because I like to slow the mania down a little bit. You know. Sure, sure. I mean, and when you when you the say like, I am, the better that works. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about mania and like energy. You obviously have a high level of energy. I've heard you use the word mania when it comes to, uh, you know, your energy levels and your work habits and whatnot. Like, do you feel? I mean, you have an abnormal amount of of mental and physical energy. Do you feel that? I don't know. Maybe it's. I wouldn't. I'd call it electrical energy. Maybe it's kind of frenetic. It's like. Uh, I saw a therapist a while back, you know, a couple of years ago, and he's like, dude, you're off the charts. He's like, uh, uh, you know, you got a tiger by the tail. I mean, uh, and which is what it feels like, which is awesome. I'm just glad that tiger's there. If that tiger wasn't there, dude, I'd be like IV drug user, like talking to parking meters. I would just totally spin out of control. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'm like serious. That. I'm convinced. I mean, really, without writing, I mean, without that one, without that, that focus. Right. I mean, who knows? What would I do with it? Probably a lot of no good. Well, sure. Yeah, no, you, it's like it's like an organizing principle. Serial masturbating. All, you know, just... <laughs> all the normal stuff. Uh, yeah, you know, I think about that yeah, with regard to a lot of different things, whether it's this, you know, high energy mania, a way to channel it, focus it, or whether it's uh, a, a writer who has some sort of uh, central issue, a grief issue, a relationship thing, something to do with their family or their parents. And they work it out through their writing, and I think I think sometimes that if you didn't have that, if a, if a writer doesn't have writing to go to as a uh, way to work through all that stuff, it would be a much worse situation. It's therapeutic, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's it's a it's a matter of uh, self care. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and just a matter of uh, you know, we are our patterns, basically. You know, at the end of the day, and so. Um, it's 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 reflective time. Like when you're always going as fast as I go, and like talking as fast, and 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 moving as fast. It's like, you know, writing is the one thing that really slows me down. I mean, I kind of hate the way I talk out loud, like because I, I, I don't think my mouth is just already moving, you know, in unison with my thoughts. Whereas when I sit down to write. I actually get to edit myself. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? Rain it in. Which is like better for everybody. So <laughs> it's like it, it works good. So now, what? Speaking of motivation, like obviously you've got this thing you love to do it. I mean, is that really the motivation? You just love to write. You love to write fiction. That's what gets you up in the morning. Or is there something deeper that drives you that you're trying to to say or do, you know, in your work? Well, I mean, a little of both. I mean, I really, I do. I, I obviously, it's really because at the end of the day, I love to do it. Because otherwise, you know, like I wrote like six unpublished novels. You know, and I had my share of rejections. I was trying, but, you know, more as a matter of due diligence. Um, it didn't really matter to me that they weren't. I would have quit a long time ago, you know, if that were the case. But, you know, at the same time, I'm ambitious. I mean, I want to push myself. And now that I have any kind of, uh, you know, that managed to, you know, cobble together any kind of readership. And, you know, I want to, I want to, uh, you know, make the best of that situation. It's a different dynamic. I mean, I wasn't writing in a vacuum before. I was writing to a reader, and that reader was me, you know, um, because I really get the same thing out of writing as I do out of reading, uh, which is empathy. I get to get outside of myself, I get to experience wider perimeters of the human experience through other characters and things like that. Sure. So I get that in an even more intense way than I ever read. 
Well, you're breaking it, up a little it, bit. What did you just say? So I guess what I'm getting at is I wasn't writing in a vacuum. I mean, to write without thinking about publication is still not to write in a vacuum. You know what I mean? I sure. mean, I've heard the argument, well, like, if you're just writing for yourself, why do you bother? Of course you want to be published. Um, you know, that's just a different issue than why I do it. You know what I mean? So do you think that, like, if you I mean, obviously you've gotten a bit of a foothold, you're making something of a living from your, your written work. Is that correct? I mean, you... <laughs> something of a living is about the perfect way to put it. Yeah, it's, it's so tough. So, I mean, here's <laughs> something a question. of a living, which is not every writer, but like, you know, James Patterson is making, you well, know, some right. of us teach, some of us have day jobs, some of us don't. I'm lucky enough not to for now. You know what I mean? But we'll see. Something of a living is, is perfect. Okay, so here's a question for you because I, now that I have a kid, I go through. I'm going through this. This is like a big issue for me right now. Like, once you have a family, you have a wife, and then you have this writing thing, which it's almost something of an addiction almost. How do you uh, deal with the idea of you know I'm going to continue to do this. Hopefully, it works. Maybe it'll work, uh, and also manage the part of you that wants to be responsible, uh, you know, to the to the family and to the the wife and kid and, and make a living and whatnot. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh yeah, that's just a really tough, you know, I mean, I, I've been blessed in terms of the timing. I mean, some might say I was cursed by the timing because it took me 20 years to get in the room as far as publication and all those buried works. But like the timing of when it happened concurrent with the birth of my first child and, and the way the money lined up and uh, the way, you know, just the way it all worked out was perfect. So I haven't had to deal with that as much as I know a lot of writers have to. Or if I had if this had happened to me earlier, I, I certainly would have. I still have the anxiety of uh, being the provider anxiety. You know, I mean, the, the yeah. normal logistics of getting paid as a writer is, you know, you get paid twice a year, and then when you sell a book, you get an advance. Or if you make, you know, I mean, the money usually only comes to you twice a year. And anybody who's ever got paid like that realizes that it's really, it's kind of a, it's a blessing, but it's kind of difficult too, because like on a daily basis, it's like, as you see is your money going one way down, you know right. what I mean? So you're always sort of anxious to like, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep doing this. And I have to, you know, I'm willing to do anything to support my family. But the point is, is, is like this point, fortunately, this is the thing I can do that, that is worth the most because, you know, I mean, otherwise I'm pretty much your laborer, you know, I'm going to be out digging ditches, you know, working in gardens, you know, I can't even swing a hammer, you know, so I have limited possibilities. So I guess the short answer is I make it work. I mean, when you ask, how do you deal with that? I just say, you know, I, I make it work. I do everything I possibly can. Sure, sure. Now, what about, uh, you know, hang on a second. I've got this damn phone ringing. But uh, when you talk about... Um, oh, don't you just hate that person right now? Yeah, just hate them, loathe them. But uh, listening to you talk about... Uh, you know, how you make it all work and the schedule and whatnot. Um, you know, what goes through my head is like, what is your idea of publication schedule? You know, like how many books, uh, do you feel like you need to, uh, be publishing like one a year, one every two years. Do you have anything like that in your head or is it just kind of like, when yeah, they come, they come? I mean, I like a two year cycle. It takes me about two years to write a book and I already had kind of a head start when I started. So, I think it takes me usually about two, you know, a book like West of Here took a little longer, but a book like The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, which is a voice novel, didn't take quite as long. I don't know. I mean, I think every two, it's really hard to keep your profile up in this business. I mean, if I've learned anything like looking at it, you know, it, it's just really hard, you know, and 
you know, either you're going to be that guy that writes a novel every 10 years like Jonathan Franzen or Jeffrey Eugenides, in which case they better just be blockbusters. Is that how you pronounce it? Is, is, is it Eugenides? Is it Eugenides? I don't know. Eugenides, Eugenides. I call him Eugenides. I don't even know. what. The, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, name. I think that's one of the ones I said. I don't know. I feel bad. But he does a book every ten. He does a book every ten years, and then he he gets these grants. Like, how does that work? How do, how do, I mean he got? Well, his... he also teaches. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate too much, but I know he probably teaches and stuff like that. So for me, on a practical level, and please, I hope no one thinks I'm hurrying. It's just that I, you know, when you write fifty to sixty hours a week, you're going to be, you know, productive. I mean, you're going to, you know, it's not like I'm I'm uh, tossing off genre novels. I mean, there's guys that write faster than me for sure, but. I just think that if I really apply myself, I should be able to write a book every two, you know, Hemingway did it, Steinbeck did it, Faulkner did it, all those, you know, I mean, all the big American writers of the 20s and 30s and 40s that I, you know, grew up on, those guys were publishing a book every couple of years. Sure. Well, and then, you know, uh, I was reading this New York Times piece recently about, I think her name is Amanda Hawking, that girl who self-published and created that vampire series or whatever it is and sold all these books on her own and then got this seven-figure deal from St. Martin's and... It's this big publishing success story that's very of the moment because she started out without a deal and she then got a deal and, and went from being the indie author who was selling all these ebooks on Kindle and suddenly she's got this giant New York publishing deal and she's she's big stuff in in that world. But she's uh, she's saying in this in this interview uh, or this uh, profile that she writes a book in ten days. She thinks it through. She goes over it in her head and then winds up cranking out one of these novels in 10 days or something like that, two weeks. And I'm thinking to myself, you got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah, I mean, screenplay maybe. Maybe. You know, 120 pages of mostly dialogue and a little stage direction, well thought out, well plotted outline. Yeah, you could bang that out in 10 days. I could, maybe, you know, but I still wouldn't release it to the world. I'd spend the next six months pouring over it, you know. Right. Oh, just I mean, amazing. I rewrite hard. I mean, I, I I don't really write fast. I mean, for all the hours I put in every day, like I say, I get in about three and a half hours every morning uh, before the, the before the household just becomes too big of a distraction, and then I usually do a couple hours before at night. So you know, I'm getting a good solid five and a half hours just on writing, um, and I I mean, I'm happy if I get a page. A page is a good day. You know what I mean? So it's not really, I'm not accumulating that fast. And then like when you rewrite, like you finish a draft, you, let's say you finish your first draft, like how radically different are subsequent drafts? Are you doing complete wrecking ball stuff on the, on the, the book or does it come out pretty whole? I mean, you know, like how does it, how does it go for you? Um, no, I'd say, well, you know, it's usually pretty well developed as it goes along. I don't really move on quickly. I'm not a, somebody who likes to write a draft, then, then write another draft and gut it. I like the thing to, to, to develop organically, because what I find is no matter what I think the book's going to be about when I start, um, through the process, I find more efficient ways to do the things I'm setting out to do. I, I discover things that I hadn't thought of before that are worthy of exploration or better than what I planned. And like, there's this constant, uh, process of reverse engineering as I discover the story, as I discover the experience as I, you know, um, you know, every day when I re-enter the, the narrative landscape, I, I see it anew and I see it a little bit better. You know, at first you, there's times where you're just pretty blind in the process. You know, it's really hard to get those first drafts out sometimes. I think writers that write really fast are really good. They just bang out 
you know, they just kind of bang out the sentences, sort of uh, stream of consciousness. And I do that sometimes more when I'm writing in voice, but uh, otherwise it's about information and, and making decisions. And I don't like to make decisions that quickly always, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, it really is about decision making. A writer brings you into a room, a hundred writers bring you into a room. There's potentially a million different rooms or, you know, a hundred different rooms to describe there. You have to, you know, so I don't know. I just can't just like let it come straight out of my head fully formed. I, I, I imagine there's people out there with that skill set. Well, yeah, but, I mean, I, but the thing too, like there's two sides of it. Like I get what you're saying and I think it's right. And I think that generally it makes more sense to, to check yourself, to sit there with it, to refine it. Uh, but I think there's also maybe the danger of making it overwrought. You know, how do you balance that? Like, how do you get to the point where you're not over tweaking it? You know, how do you know when to step away from the canvas essentially? Uh, for me, it's about language. I mean, I'll often, uh, you know, sometimes I'll, uh, I'll turn a phrase that's really poetic and then I'll go back and say, you know what? I just, I avoid, uh, purplish prose when I can, for one. I mean, when, when something's overwrought, it, I, I usually feel like it's the language. If the idea is overwrought, it's pretty easy to fix. It's usually just a matter of cutting. But when the sentences become strangled with the verbiage in it, they cease to communicate, you know? I, I don't look at the words. I mean, of course, obviously, the words are the tools I use, but I, I use them more like bricks, I think. <laughs> as blunt as that sounds. I mean, it's like... Maybe a better analogy is I feel like the blood is the the words are the blood running through the story, and that it's not always going to. Sometimes that means short, choppy sentences. Sometimes that means sometimes it does mean more poetic, flighty language. So, you know, it's I think stuff that's overwrought is usually feels very even, and that like every sentence feels like it's over caressed or over. I just don't pay I I pay attention to the sentence in so much as it attaches to the next sentence. To me, it's all about the, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. It's just a continuum. I mean, like when I read aloud, I go back like six sentences before and read till the sentence I just wrote. So you know what it, I mean? Is it kind of musical? Is that it? I mean, is it the sound? Totally, of it? totally. Like it has to have a rhythm and a pulse and it has to swing. It has to be really readable. I mean, um, and, and not everybody's going to write like that, and I'm glad. You know what I mean? I don't want to read every book that sounds like me. Some people are more formal with their language. Um, but, you know, for me, I don't even want to think about the fact that I'm reading words. You know what I mean? It's just words in this case of the medium. I want to serve the story first. Sorry, I'm, you know, I'm going on and on. I guess I should, could have just answered the whole question. Is I, I, this, I'm, I'm there to serve the story before the language. Sure, sure. Well... Uh, talk a little bit about how you got into it. I'm curious, you know, you've done so many different things and you had this long road, uh, you know, to the top or whatever, but wh where did this all start? Have you always wanted to do it? Have you uh, been doing it since you were a kid or is this something you came to later in life? Like, wh What's the backstory? Well, since third grade, I don't know, my dad relocated us up here and, uh, you know, my sister died a few few years earlier and our family was just kind of a mess. They had a big family and we my dad sort of moved us all uh, up here, and then he took off and moved back down. And um, I had ended it up because I was in this uh, sort of accelerated class. Uh, I had this, when I was in second grade, I had an accelerated, uh, you know, class or whatever. So I was basically getting a, a third grade curriculum. So when I came, I, I had already I was already the youngest person in my class. And I came, and they wanted to uh, skip me ahead of grade kind of thing. Um, but I'd already because I'd already had the curriculum for the third grade class, but my mom was worried about the social issues because I was already the youngest and I was kind of shrimpy and she was just worried I'd be, you know, just a wreck 
I'm glad she made the decision uh, she did. It always gave me an advantage in Little League Baseball. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was still the youngest in my class, but uh, uh, some of the guys were like a, a grade younger than me. Kind of so so no, anyway, yeah. when I came up here, I was suddenly like in this class where I had already had the cu- curriculum, so I really started to, plus all this other stuff going on in our my family life, I really started to become kind of a behavioral problem, a distraction in the classroom. I mean, my, my high energy really started to take hold. You made well, me think about that whole trauma theory you were talking about earlier. Well, let me ask you, I mean, if you don't mind, just like what, what happened with your sister? Was she, she was, uh, I think you, I remember you telling me she was hit by a car. Is that correct? Or Yeah, well, it's really weird. Nobody really, it, it, it's the, the way the whole thing went down is a little shady. I mean, the story always was they were pushing the car up the hill, but like, stuff has come to light that, uh, you know, I mean, that, that I don't think we all really know the story. Like, I don't know if they they'd been drinking up there or, or whatever. It happened out in the Lucerne Valley, um, on my sister's 16th birthday. And, uh, you know, she's kind of my primary caregiver by at, at that time. And, uh, I don't know, it just, you know, anybody who's ever lost a sibling knows that it just, it's like a hand grenade at the middle of your family. You know, I mean, it just, it just blows you up. And then, you know, more than half the time, the marriages don't survive and so forth. And there was just so, there's some turbulence, you know. Sure. I mean, it, it's not, you know, it was American suburban stuff, basically. I mean, it's not like I was raised as a ward of the state. I mean, it was nothing too traumatizing, but like, you know, it's who I am. I mean, it, it, you know. Well, it, was, it had a big impact. It was when, formative. When's my hour up, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> You're my therapist now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, no. But that's what happened. Third grade, they, my, my, I had this teacher, and she said, well, why don't you just write? Because I'd already had an interest in writing. I decided I wanted to try to write and give voice to all this stuff. And so she let me just kind of sit in the corner and write. And, um, you know, I still was a behavioral problem, but I was less disruptive to the classroom. And then in fourth grade, I published a children's story, and uh, which was an auspicious beginning. And then uh, for, you know, what? 30 years, 31 years, I didn't publish, you know, about 30 years, I didn't publish anything else. Well, you know, but I think, it's a, I think it's all interesting because I feel like, uh, you know, I lost a buddy when I was in college to suicide, which was definitely the, uh, the genesis of my uh, novel. And I think that uh, a lot of times writers, I mean, I guess you, you're sort of born this way. You have it or you don't. You, you have the bug or you don't. And at the same time, I feel like sometimes it's these big, uh, difficult, situations or events in our lives that trigger it or that serve as the fodder for the writing. I mean, I know a lot of writers that work from grief or a lot of writers who uh, at least are set on their course by that sort of thing, or they're set on their course by a family relationship or by some sort of crazy couple of years they had, or does that make sense? I mean, it seems like those kinds of things, uh, well, totally. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems Completely like it makes sense. I don't, I mean, I feel like people that don't have that are kind of at a disadvantage to mine the world for, for material. I mean, I think as an individual, in order to even be able to sort of channel these different characters and these different points of view and these different experiences and perspectives, you need to have experienced the widest possible dynamic yourself. So if you're somebody who's not experienced much grief or, or, or much adversity or, 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 or accrued much experience, I mean, you know, um, you, you're writing out of the void, and, and it could be uh, intellectually stimulating, um, but I think you're going to have a hard time really, you know, get, reaching some level of emotional resonance, maybe, because it, it has to feel lived. Well, it's funny, because, like, you know, you have, I'm sure, I don't know if you've had this, but I've had this experience where, uh, 
you know, in my younger years, I, I sort of felt jealous of these guys who got to go off to war or got like, some, you know, some terrible thing happened to them or they went through some huge cataclysm, like like Vonnegut being in Dresden when they firebombed it and he's in a POW camp. I'm like, well, shit, you know, like lucky guy, you know, as, as absurd as that sounds, you know, like the more, the more uh, insane someone's life is, the more fodder they often have, especially when it comes to memoir. You know, you read somebody's memoir and you're like, Jesus, you know, by comparison, I had the easiest childhood ever. And, you know, uh, this is sort of like happy life, essentially. That's how I feel. Can we just dispense with the memoir? I mean, please, it's fiction and we all know it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a degree, it's one degree less fiction, but I mean, I mean, in this day and age, it's, I don't know. I'm well, sorry. I just think memoir is boring. Well, no, if somebody I... tells me about this great thing they write a memoir about, I'm just thinking, you know, man, great experience. Should have written a novel. Because, you know, memoir, life, they, I don't know. Well, life no, doesn't I... deliver truth as, as conveniently as, as fiction, I don't think. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I just went through this sort of. I, I was working on, I've been working on this, like, you know, I call it an experimental memoir. And it is it is basically an assemblage of uh, outtakes from letters that I wrote in my twenties. I wrote a shitload of letters in my twenties, uh, like like three thousand plus pages, and and of course saved them all with some sort of like, you know, hallucinatory idea that they might be uh, worth something someday. Just like you know. Well, here you are trying to make worth something. Just yeah. Well, <laughs> so no, maybe that was prophetic. I don't know what it is. It was like an it's an act of like uh, self archaeology. I don't I don't know if this book is worth a shit, but I, I assembled it. And uh, I'm, I'm putting it together and there's a very conscious part of me that's like, this is bullshit. Like, even though it's letters, which I feel like, I, I think part of the reason why the letters were attractive to me because was because or is because there was uh, the least amount of filter, the least amount of me noodling and making it into bullshit. Totally. It, and to me, that's what makes fiction so, personally, that's what makes fiction so interesting. Is the noodling, is the decisions, is the decision to tell what to tell and not to tell, whereas is the colloquial or the letter writing? I don't know. Sorry, I just called your book boring. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. It might be. It could be. I haven't even read the letters. But even if they're, I mean, I'm just imagining the letters I wrote when I was 20. Oh they're, God, they're that would be really hard for you to look at them. Well, no, it's kind of like have you ever heard of Mortified? That show where people read from their old diaries and it's like hysterical. That's that's kind of what the book is. It's an it's extended no. act of you know self mortification or whatever you want to call it, but. Um, you know, I. That's a courageous act, Bradley. That is courageous. Uh, or stupid. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I. No, it's courageous. I get, no matter what. I get what you're saying about it being uh, the memoir. It's impossible, even if you're trying as hard as you can to stick to the facts. It's impossible to have a memoir be called nonfiction. It's just that memory is too unreliable, unless you have Total Recall or some crazy thing like that. But my memory is terrible. I can't remember anything. Uh, you know, I can remember very few things. It's very spotty, and so. I just, uh, you know, having gone through that, even with letters, I feel like there's always an act of performance involved. And when you say when you say dispense with the memoir, it sort of hits me because it's like in a good way, because I think that, uh, you know, to some extent, it's all fiction. It's really difficult, you know, when you're writing. It is. Our memories are so subjective. I mean, you know, with the, you know, even documentary film has proven itself a lot recent years to not be very subjective uh, or objective, rather. I mean, it, it, Memory is just so subjective. I mean, like, every every narrator that writes a, a memoir is an unreliable narrator. You know? I mean, exactly. it's like... So I, I just don't... I guess I have a personal distaste for it because I, I, I could never write it. I would just feel so trapped. 
I would just feel like I already lived it. So then where's the sense of discovering to me? It becomes an act of recollection and not an act of discovery. I mean, I need to discover. I'm writing to discover. And if I were just sitting down and trying to write an honest memoir as close as I can, I feel like I'd just be rehashing stuff. So when, I don't so need... when you work on your, on your fiction, you're, you're consciously choosing to write about characters who are far away from your experience as a way of trying yeah, to... Yeah, I want them... I want to get lost in the novel, too. I want to be at a point where I don't feel like I'm in total control. I mean, I need there to be... Uh, you know, the craft goes so far, but really the danger... It's the danger that's the heartbeat of the story. I got to throw myself out there with my set of tools as an artist and like put myself into the most uncomfortable situations, the ones where my footing feels the least sound and I have to make my way through it, you know, I mean, because the stakes are high. You know what I mean? Again, look at it as like an athletic thing. I don't, I, I don't want to play in the fourth quarter of a blowout. I mean, I want to be tested. And so I want to get lost. And so if I was writing a memoir, I mean, the test would be how good is my memory. And, you know, I, I just, well, it seems dull. I like your idea of the letters better because I, I agree. There's less of a filter there. But it just seems like it can be so potentially unreadable. It might be. Even, even you, because, you're, I mean, you're a brilliant writer, but come on, 20 years old. I mean, it's I tough. imagine. Like there is like a, it, it felt at times, uh, at, you know, oftentimes, almost every time, look, reading these things back, it was like they were hot. I had to put them down. I would get like physically embarrassed to the point where I couldn't even keep, re- I could not keep reading. I had to put the things down. But that's all- why, it's exactly why I bury them. I mean, that's why I buried books. Well, I knew. I need to shred I these knew. things. I need to get rid of them. I need to, I need to. Send- Better publish them. Maybe you're onto something. Who am I to say? Christ, I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. But a 900 page memoir of Listy's letters in his 20s. <laughs> just clips, you know. <laughs> I tried sounds, to cut it out. It sounds commercial. It sounds, yeah, it sounds frightening. It's a horror novel. That's what I'm going to publish it as. It's going to be a horror novel. <laughs> uh, so uh, let me ask you this question. What's a, who's a novelist? Who's a writer? Uh, whose career you would love to have? Like, who's somebody you look at and you're like, that's what I want? Like, how does, it, how does this play out in a way that, um, you know, suits your dreams or, you know, not, not in an idealistic way, but in a, I would really like for this to happen. Who's well, got you that know, career? I mean, I love, I love the way I'm always talking about, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't want to, I can't really, there's not that many good working examples in this day and age. I mean, I want to be a literary novelist that writes a novel every couple of years. Uh, has a lot of people read it, makes a living, keeps pushing himself as an artist. Uh, what's a lot of people? What's a lot of people? Like, what's an, what's a readership that you think would be like you know sustainable, great? Oh, I don't want to say that. I don't know. I can't say because it could vary. You know what I mean? I started with a smaller readership than I have now, but it was such a uh, uh, intimate readership. You know what I mean? There's, there's the quality over quantity too. There's a certain baseline number of books I think a fellow's got to sell or. You know, a writer's got to sell before they're able to, like, actually, you know, pay the bills. And I don't know what that number would be. I mean, I would think that every novel would have to, you know, I don't know, man. What would you have to, it just depends on what your advances are, whether you earn them out. It's all a big quagmire. Well, and I'm plus, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just asking trying to keep write what I got math. going on and maybe. What's that? I said I was, I'm, I'm also asking a writer to do math and things get sticky when you get into that. I mean, I can't, I can't figure <laughs> this out. That's my accountant. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I think too, there's an issue where the more books you publish, if you can build up a, uh, a list and then you start to get readers to access your work through whatever book they pick up, if they like it, you know, if, if they're anything like me, you read somebody, you like their, their book, you wind up wanting to read other stuff and hopefully that over time, 
Uh, you it's know. the hope, right. You create a little cottage industry by, you know, getting people into you keep trying to grow your audience into the future and then, you know, and in doing so you renew the interest in your old sweethearts, your old babies. You know, I mean I've seen Lulu's reached a whole new audience, which has been wonderful. Um you know, but my core readers are always my core readers and there's not very many of them, you know. I mean that's a fact. I mean, you know, I've been really fortunate but it's just when you do the math, man, it's just not that many readers compared to like, you know, like what a Hollywood director's looking at, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like I feel like it's dwindling, or there's something happening, and I can't really define. I think that's sort of what everyone's sort of you know grasping at. People are either spending time thinking about it, or they're they're denying it, or they're just exhausted from the conversation, and they don't even want to think about it, and they just want to focus on whatever little thing they like. But for people who want to make a living, you look to the future, and I sometimes have it in my head that form is going to change, and you know, some sort of uh, mid-range form between a short story and a novella is going to wind up being really popular because it's digestible on an iPhone. Uh, you know, I hate to reduce it like that, but it's like, it seems like people's attention spans increasingly uh, are geared towards a shorter form, whether it's fiction, nonfiction. Yeah, well, okay. Well, here's where we part. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm actually, in, some will call this optimistic, but it's just counterintuitive, like everything else that has ever worked for me. I, I believe it, it's counterintuitive, but I believe that big novels poised for a comeback. And I believe that people really do long for that longer form narrative. If you look at the sort of TV they like to watch, I mean, the good stuff. And, and let's be honest, there's, there's HBO's producing stuff today that's better than anything that's ever been on television. You know what I mean? They're, 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 they're telling great stories. Not sure. all of them, but like some of them are, and these are very long form stories, and these are a big investment, you know. Granted, it's one hour once a week, six months a year, or whatever, but it is a big investment, and people are proving they're willing to make it. I think the key is to, to you know, I don't know how you target the audience for that, but I know there's a big, I know there's a, I know there's a, a hunger for it. Well, yeah, it's out there. And the story's good, you know. I mean, look at, uh, look at, you know, I, I don't know if this is the right example, but Harry Potter with little kids reading seven hundred page books, it can happen. Uh, I just wonder, or I would love to see some sort of quantification of the market, like how many people out there are really, really interested in reading serious literary fiction, uh, and what, how many of, them, you know, I would love to just know the number. And if let's say there's two okay, and a half well, I million, think I read somewhere there's a kind of an index for this where it's like. To define first, you got to have like a a, a a number, like a, def, a defined number, like uh, uh, let's call a serious uh, reader of literary fiction uh, uh, a consumer who buys uh, six new literary fiction titles a year. You know what I mean? That may, which doesn't sound like a lot, but even at that level, I'm guessing that number can't be over ten thousand people. Yeah, that's you know. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm pulling these numbers out of my ass where I pull most stuff from. But <laughs> honestly, I mean, I don't think that that's too far off. I mean, look, I've looked at so many uh, like sales numbers and book scans and see, you know what I mean? And and you do start to see a pattern form with like, you know, how much a literary title can sell and, and at what point it becomes a breakout and and you know what I mean? So how many did Franzen sell of, of uh, Freedom? Like that was about as big of a push as a, liter a work of literary fiction can get. I'm, have you seen sales numbers on that? Do we have any idea? Uh, I know it's over two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, I know they. I mean, they were two hundred fifty thousand in print. I think like really early on in hardback. I don't know. You know, I mean, it's not. It's not hard for me to believe it sold close to a million copies. 
So there's at least a million people who would buy it if it's on you know cover of Time magazine and right. But are those million people going to buy five other uh, sort of uh, timely or topical literary fiction titles this year? No. You know what I mean? The overwhelming majority of those people are not going to. Well, it's and, because. Well, and here's a question though. It feels it feel, yeah, and it feels like too. Uh, it's a time is such an issue, and I just wonder. Back in the day, I mean, life was clearly moving at a slower pace. And people had less options for entertainment. But I think about my own life, like having the time to sit down, especially now with a kid, uh, to sit down and read uh, a big book. It's tough. It's tough, even if you love books and it's a big deal. Like I, I know you make the time if it's you know if it's truly important to you. But I think a lot of people out there would love to have more time to read. But it's a luxury that they can't afford. It seems like. And yeah, I think they can't afford it. <laughs> That's the thing. It's, you just have to make the effort. And most people aren't going to be willing to do that. I mean, most Americans aren't really, you know, I mean, go to Texas. Nobody even wants stairs in their house because they don't want to, you know, climb up them. <laughs> Is that true? I'm serious. I'm really? serious. No, so my wife watches these, like, HGTV shows. And, like, all the Texas homebuyers are like, well, you don't want any stairs. Up. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I mean, I know a lot of great people in Texas. Don't get me wrong. But truly, the housing market is a bigger market for one story. Is housing. it because people are okay. out of shape and overweight and stuff? Or? Yeah, I think Texas is maybe among the fattest states. Christ. And they always have big kitchens, too. Dude, I'm only reporting what I see on HGTV. Yeah, well, I, you know. Brings me, you know, people have time. My, my, my wife is busy mom, you know what I mean? She's a busy mom, but she still manages to bang out at least a literary fiction title a week. She reads, like, pretty close to a book a week. I mean, it really does take an effort. But the thing is, is it's so rewarding. I think that people, if people fall in love with a book, they don't really think, oh, I've got to make time for this. They just make time, you know what I mean? They'll sneak into the bathroom at work. They'll just read it on their lunch hour and, and go to a place where they know they're not going to run into anybody. It's just people need to remind themselves how good it is. Well, no, I wrote something about this a while back, an essay on the nervous breakdown about uh, how the the toilet was the last bastion of serious reading, uh, you know, in America, even though the iPad is sort of infringing on that. Now, I feel like a lot of people are taking the iPad into the bathroom, but it seemed like it was the one place where you could get peace and have no distractions and focus on a book. Uh, yeah, I just do my Facebook check-ins from there. Is that what you do with the laptop? You have oh, an yeah. iPad? On the toilet, or I tweet it. On the toilet, dot, 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 again. <laughs> well, is this with a, a laptop? Or with, yeah. an, with an iPad, or no. you, it's, a, it's an iPad or a phone, or what is it? No, I have a I have a giant laptop, and you put that on your lap. It's cheap, yeah. Wow, that's ambitious, man. That's uh. I can't know. do it in a hotel. I can't do it in hotel bathrooms because uh, I think I've discussed with you. I have a, a issue there. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's because toilet, hotel toilets, and I mean I've stayed in a lot of hotels. Uh, the, either the water, well, I think it's a combination of things. The toilets tend to be squat, and the water level seems to be high. And so, uh, you know, my boys are usually, like, in danger of submersion. So, they really hang that low. Yeah, I have to work some kind of reach around most times <laughs> in a hotel toilet just for hygienic reasons. So I couldn't possibly, you know, you know not, I could text with one hand. You're not bringing a computer into that environment. It just wouldn't be, it wouldn't be sanitary. It would be difficult. No. 
Uh, you should get an iPad. You know, that would solve your problem. You could have uh, it's a lighter yeah. contraption. I'd rather spend the money on beer. I'm not a big buy stuff technology. I know I'm kind of behind. I'm kind of a dinosaur. But dude, I'm talking to you from a '75 Dodge motorhome. I don't even want a new motorhome. Talk I just about keep this thing. Money into this thing. What is that? I mean, you've got a '75 Dodge motorhome. You you venture out like so. This thing is you know it's a mobile home. You drive it out into the woods on a fairly regular basis, correct? Oh, probably 100 days a year. I mean, it's parked in the woods right now. As far as most of America is concerned, I'm camping. I mean, but uh, I, I kick it out a lot. And it's not huge. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to picture. I mean, it's like 23 feet long. It's got a sleeper above the cabin. It's got a little kitchen. It's got a refrigerator. Um, and it's got a bathroom and a sleeping berth and a little fold-out table and some orange swivel chairs and three dog beds. And, uh, but it's not huge. Like, I mean, I've, I've parallel parked it in downtown Portland right in front of Powell's before. Nice. Now, do you, uh, do you bring the family or is this something that you get away in as like a writer's retreat or both, I guess? It's about 50, 50. It's about 50, 50. Sometimes when I say when it's hard for me to be getting work done, I just, uh, I'll call, uh, Lauren, I'll take the baby to grandma's for two days. And I will just go out to the woods and I'll just work my ass off for 16 hours a day. And then, and, you know, during the week, I just don't have to worry about getting as much done. But, like, last week, we all went up to Soldock Hot Springs. We brought the whole family. I mean, brought all the dogs, brought the baby, uh, brought my two nephews. And they all stayed, the, my nephew stayed in the motorhome. And we stayed, that we got a little cabin. And then, uh, you know, we just did a fire by the river at night. And that was nice. Damn. I'm really busy because I'm like the den mother. Like when I do that, it's not very relaxing for me because I got to cook for five people and you know make sure all the dogs have gone to the bathroom. So it's kind of, but it's a good kind of busy, you know. You got a bathroom or anything? What's that? Got, there is, but you know, once you've emptied a motorhome bathroom, you just don't even want to use it anymore. No, it's, it's disgusting. Just, you know, the job of emptying, you know, urine and feces out of a plastic tank, but it's just, you know, I just use it for storage. I've got half of mine to just take the plumbing out. And, you know, yeah, no, I, I did a motorhome trip in college, uh, with the, you know, when I, I had like a year and a half where I was a hippie and, uh, we did some sort of, I've seen the photos badly. Yeah, no, it wasn't pretty. I was, uh, they're was golden. Disaster. No, they're beautiful. I was a disaster with long hair, but I had long hair and the whole thing. And I remember we were in this camper and, and people were using the bathroom. It's just, it was just gross. You just, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way to make that work. I don't think unless you get something. No, and you head. know, you you start to smell it anyway. It's, I don't like the idea, like you know, come to a quick stop and there's you know thirty pounds of shit, like you know, agitated. I, don't, I, I just you know, I use the woods or I use a, a you know, the, I'm usually at a national park or a state park or something. They have facilities. So that's, that's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. You're parked in the woods. You park this thing near a camp. It's got like a fire pit and whatnot, and then. You just walk out into the woods and squat, or there's usually like some sort of facility that you have to drive to, or you can walk to. Like, I mean, that's just walk to. Okay. This is the Johnny Everson TMI interview. Well, hey, you know, it's a, this is what this show's Everything about. Everything you didn't need to know about <laughs> my bathroom habits. This is what my, people want to hear. They want my, to know my bleeding prostate, and you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> we have touched a lot of bases, haven't we? Uh, yes. Well, but you know, it's all fascinating, and uh, I guess I'm curious. Like you, 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 Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Well, no, it is. It is to me. I love this okay. kind of stuff. This is the. This I is think the thing. The guys, it is anyway. I don't know if women will find it fascinating. No, women I mean, will. Guys, people, guys find it more fascinating. No, people. Yeah, I think guys are more prone to think this sort of stuff is funny. But I think everybody likes to know little details about people's lives to get a sense of who they are. And uh, funny stuff is funny stuff, but. Uh, you know, this show, you know, as I've conceived it so far anyway, is about 
this stuff as opposed to about like a really nuanced literary discussion, like lit crit talk, which I, you know, I would be terrible at anyway. So I love the idea of, of talking to authors and finding out about their lives because uh, a, I think it's interesting. And then B, I think that authors are better conversationalists than they get credit for, you know, usually are, are funnier and, and, you know, have more interesting lives than uh, they sometimes reveal or, or have a chance to reveal. So this is exactly right for the show. Uh, and I guess like, you know, uh, what I'd want to know next is, uh, you know, you've got, uh, the revised fundamentals of caregiving, which is your next novel, correct? Yep. And that's in the can that's done. Yeah. I think that comes out probably next fall. Okay. And it's from Algonquin as well. Yep. And then you've got another book or two or what's the deal? How many books ahead There's of you? one. I'm not, I'm not even there yet. I'm about 60 because I'm two thirds of the way through it. As of today, I'm almost exactly two thirds of the way there. And I hit 60K this morning, and it's really starting to come together and coalesce, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, still a lot of lot of uh, grunt work to be done, though. We got um, a title? I got imagine it. it'll be done in three, four, five months. Well, what's it called? You got a name, or is it classified? It's called The Dream Life of Huntington Sales. The Dream Life. Okay, so, and that's a lock. You yeah, know that. somebody in marketing is going to probably try to talk me out of that, you know? But Why? That's what it's called. I don't know. It's got the word dream in the title. Oh, that's true. It's got the word sales in the title. It's got the word marriage in the title now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the, 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 the love life of good sales. Change his name to good or great. You know, Then you'll be good. Your, uh, your marketing people will love that. Uh, so 60,000 words, two-thirds of the way done. So this is a fairly big book. I mean, you're going to get into the... Yeah, it's about the size of Lulu or the revised fundamental of the care game. Right around 300 pages is a real comfortable length for me, generally. West of here was much bigger in scope, and I think that I'm, it's probably not the last bigger book I undertake, but like I think generally speaking, you know, 300 pages feels really pretty good to me, intuitively. And, like, I've got my next book. I've got tons of notes on my next book, and I already know, you know, the voice, and and uh, I'm really excited to see where it takes me. But, you know, I gotta, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself, you know. It's nice to have that kind of stewing in the back burner, though. Well, it's not yet. It's, like, it's got to be – it's a kind of a comfort. I think that's a smart way to go where you get ahead of yourself with, uh, with a book just because it takes so long anyway, and you want to feel like there's something next to serve up, you know, without the pressure of – having to create it from thin air, you know, I think that's, yeah, I feel like a battery has got a couple of hits in his bag instead of a, I mean, it's a really tough position to be in more like, you don't know where, you know, I don't want to ever have to start pressing. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's just, it can spiral. It can just like destroy writer self-confidence and, you know, and athletes and anybody else. I mean, it's like, uh, scary. I met, I, I had a, I met an unnamed writer, uh, in San Francisco, it, it had some success, maybe, uh, you know, quite a deal of success with a debut novel, uh, five or six years, uh, before I met them and had not gotten anywhere writing their next novel yet. And this person was just, just kind of a wreck. Christ. Like, uh, I talked to this person and this, I'm being so sly about not telling the sex here. Hey, um, you're going gender him. neutral on me. Give okay. me at least the sex. Him. Okay, after you hear what this guy did to me, you're going <laughs> to wonder why I'm protecting him. So I, I'm just trying to give this guy a pep talk at the bar, like, dude, no pressure, all right. I mean, like, this person, the guy was really pressing, and, like, he's just getting really hammered. And uh, at the end of the night, the guy tried to steal my bag, <laughs> and he totally knew it was mine. He knew I, we were talking. I was talking about the notes I had in there and things like I mean, this guy literally... Waited till I wasn't looking, put my bag on his shoulder, 
and somebody goes, dude, is that your bag? Somebody happened to see it, and like I caught him out, out front stealing my bag. you got to be shitting and it was me. just really, no, it was really weird. But this is just giving you an idea of how much this guy was struggling. I mean, I don't know if his plan was to steal my notes and get some inspiration or if it was just to spite me because, you know, I already had my next book done. But this guy was pretty fucked up. I just, that scared the shit out of me. Like, was I he, never want to be there. Was <laughs> he know? hammered? Was he hammered? He was, he was hammered by the time he stole the bag, yeah. Oh, that's it. I mean, maybe but, I mean, he's still, just a problem he, drunk. He didn't bring a bag. He didn't bring a bag, dude. I mean, this guy, it was, because it was really uncomfortable when I caught him, too. Well, you know, let me ask you this. I caught him, and then I killed him with kindness. I sat him back down at the bar, bought him another beer, and talked to him. But secretly, I just wanted to punch his lights out <laughs> trying to steal my back. That was so much work. You know what I mean? Oh. But somebody would do that. You know, my notes, like, notes come in these flashes of inspiration where if, I don't, if you don't scribble them down, you may never remember them kind of thing. Sure. It's, it's a terrible thing to lose those. And to think somebody actually went out of their way to try to steal them was just weird. Was it, now, was this guy coherent? I'm, I'm picturing a sloppy drunk. That's the only way that I can make sense of this. Was he coherent? Pretty sloppy, but I didn't think the guy was a sloppy drunk because he's just been pressing for five years after the success of one novel to, like, reinvent himself. You know what I'm saying? I just, I, whenever I met writers that are under any kind of deadline or the pressure to, you know, I just feel bad for him because I think about being a hitter that needs a hit, like you're 0 for 23. Dude, I've been on the, sh- I've been on the, my softball team until last night, I swear, I couldn't buy a hit. And this is like fat men's league softball, you know, and I'm dropping my shoulder, pulling my head off the ball, you know, uh, uh, lunging, doing everything wrong in men's softball. And last night, I finally got a couple of hits, and it's like, oh, I hope it's over. But the way I felt in the batter's box, I didn't believe I could get a hit. Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's the worst place to be dealing from as a performer or an artist or a, you know, did you, did you steal somebody else's bat? Were you thinking of of doing something like that? (laughs) That's yeah. Well, I give it, I mean, I could borrow it and still give it back. Nothing was working, Bradley. Last night I just stayed back and it it felt so good. I just hammered a ball up the middle and I was like, ah, well, dugout collective sigh of relief. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And, uh, you know, you've definitely been uh, a great inspiration to a lot of people, a lot of writers with all of your energy and good work. And, uh, you know, I think everybody's sort of predicting big things for you or more big things. So thanks for spending uh, some time chatting. Thanks for all your help with uh, TNB and the book club and everything else. And, you know, we'll, uh, we'll talk again some point down the road. Always a pleasure, Bradley. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, just enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, Bubs. Better man. Ah. All right, everybody, there you have it. Jonathan Evison, author of All About Lulu and West of Here. The guy, uh, he's got an incredible level of energy, an almost legendary level of manic energy that anybody who's ever been around him can attest to. Uh, he's the kind of guy who gets stuff done quickly and who wakes up at the crack of dawn without an alarm clock, writes for eight hours, then goes out and walks six miles and thinks about writing and then comes home and finally eats something. That's the kind of guy he is. We go way back. Uh, Jonathan and I met on MySpace of all places. We used to be MySpace buddies back when people were MySpace buddies. And from there, a relationship flowered. We've met in person several times. He's the executive editor of The Nervous Breakdown, which makes him a logical place for us to start with this show. He's also 
a fine writer. Go get his books. That does it. Thanks for listening. It's going to get better and better as we go. I'm getting my sea legs. I'm learning how this works. Uh, don't forget, you can email me, letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Follow me on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. You can also follow me personally, at Brad Listy on the Twitter, uh, thenervousbreakdown.com. That's got a Twitter feed, at TNB Tweets. It's also got a Facebook presence that's fairly robust. Get in there. And then don't forget, most of all, subscribe to other people on iTunes. This show is free. It's twice a week. That's what we're gunning for. Sunday and Wednesday, you can listen to it unless something crazy happens and there's not enough time. But that's the plan at this point. Two shows a week, two authors a week, hour-long interviews. You can listen. It's free. Subscribe. If you like it, give us a good rating on the iTunes and then other people will find out about it. And then maybe they'll subscribe. And then it'll snowball. Back uh, in a couple of days, folks, signing off. I'm going to go get something to eat, I think. I'm a little bit hungry. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.